I have one more thing uh, that I want to talk about before we jump into this text, which is uh, this week is the end of our discipleship course, um, which many of you are involved in. And it's become tradition that at the end of discipleship course, uh, during that last week, we fast together as a church. This year, we're doing it a little bit differently. Normally, we do the Wednesday night session, and then we fast on Thursday and Friday and have a night of worship and reflection on Friday. Instead, what we're doing this year is we're going to fast Tuesday and Wednesday, and then Wednesday night, actually, at D-Course is going to be kind of a combo of what we know as D-Course. You'll be in your, your classes for a little bit, and then we'll come into this space together and have a time of reflection and worship to close out the semester. But in preparation for that, we're going to fast together on Tuesday and Wednesday. And so fasting is an ancient practice. I won't go into all the details. It's an ancient practice of going without food, denying ourselves our most essential physical need in order to call to mind and to declare before God um, our, our greater need actually for him. And so it's a way of, uh, put it, starving our flesh in order to feed our spirit is, is one way that I've heard it put. It's cultivating um, humility because there's something about not eating that's kind of miserable and that kind of reminds us, ugh, at base, I'm like not a very nice person sometimes. <laughs> and right, going without that food, it, it brings us to our sort of most humbled state. And there's a humility that God really draws near to, even that kind of grumbling humility, even that just weak awareness of ourselves is something he draws close to. This seems to be why throughout scriptures we have examples of fasting. And so uh, if this is your first time fasting, um, this doesn't have to be an endurance sport. You can, you can do something like um, going without one meal those two days. Um, many of you have done this a couple times at this point, and I'd encourage you to, to maybe just kind of, kind of up it. Uh, the point is to be hungry. Um, the point is not to drink protein shakes instead of your normal <laughs> meals, right? Point is to be hungry. Um, and so whatever that's going to be for you would encourage you to do that. If you have questions about that, maybe some reservations about that, given your own story with food or anything like that, please, please, please talk to Rachel or I or anyone on the discipleship team. Um, there's, there's nothing that says you have to do this. Um, but um, those kinds of things aside, we would really encourage you to consider joining us, um, maybe especially if it's your first time. It's kind of fun to do it with the, with the whole church and to be able to text people in your D course, say, hey, are you fasting? Um, I'll send out an obnoxious email on Tuesday morning saying, put the bagel down. Um, remember, we're fasting together. Everybody hates that email, um, but it's a necessary one. Uh, every single semester and so and then join us uh, if you're not in discipleship course you can still join us on Wednesday night come at about 7 30 um, is when the the time together will start we would invite you to do that love to have you here for that cool great okay um, we are in this series in the Gospel of John that we're calling Encountering Jesus. Uh, this is from our vision as a church. We're a church that exists to break barriers to encounter Jesus together. And the Gospel of John is one of these beautiful, maybe, maybe the, the best um, beautiful example of uh, in the Gospels of just all of these encounters with Jesus. And so that's why we named it this, is because we have all of these examples of what it actually means and looks like to interact with Jesus and to see him um, in, in these sort of face-to-face -face moments with people. This particular text, which as Brian read it, I, I wonder if you even felt some of this, which it's a little bit hard to follow, I'll be totally honest. There's sort of a lot going on here, and it's a lot of words stacked on top of each other. What we have early in John's gospel is um, we have this rhythm of 
Um, Jesus does something, normally sort of one-on-one with someone like his interaction with the woman at the well or the healing at the pool um, at Bethesda. Like there's, there's these, these actions that happen and then we have some commentary on it. Then we have Jesus giving a little bit of thoughts on what the meaning of that might be. We've just had, if you were with us uh, last week when, when Tyler preached, um, we just had these two things happen, these two healings basically happen, one after another, without much commentary in between. So this is, this is kind of that. So he's really reflecting on what the meaning of what just happened. He's, he's raised the, the official's son from afar. Remember, he says, your, your son will live. He's saying this while he's not even geographically proximate to him. He's saying this from afar. And then there's that, that beautiful healing at the pool where Jesus says, Take up your mat. Now we have this long discourse. Probably what we have here, you got to keep in mind this about what the Gospels are doing. Probably what we have here is not like a verbatim, um, a verbatim conversation that Jesus said all of this at once in some sort of stream of consciousness moment. Probably what we have here is John, after years and years and years of reflecting, we probably have John putting together the kinds of things Jesus would say after these kinds of moments in his ministry. And what we see at, at the end of these two moments is this opposition that he faces from, from the religious authorities of that day, people that we've called uh, in this series the serious people. I love that one commentator calls them the serious people, the religiously serious people, and he's using that ironically. I find that helpful. So there, so there's these amazing things that happened, then he gets pushed back, and then we have this record of this long example of these are the kinds of responses that Jesus would give when this opposition came. And because there's so much here, I do feel like it would be good to to give you a little bit of structure of where we're headed here. Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, um, first, the unique identity that Jesus is claiming here the uniqueness of who Jesus is. We're going to look at Jesus' identity. Second, we're going to look at how Jesus invites us to encounter who he is, picking up on the theme of this series and uh, on the vision of our church. So, so how do we encounter Jesus? How are we invited to sort of examine and experience and encounter that identity? So the identity of Jesus, how we're invited to encounter that. And then the biggest personal barriers that many of us bring to actually encountering Jesus in the way that he calls us to. So you see how I'm picking up on the language of our vision there. Normally when we think of breaking barriers to encounter Jesus, we think of the the woman at the well, rightly so, and we think of sort of external barriers, cultural barriers, all those kinds of things. Today, this passage is really talking about what are the barriers that are in our own hearts to encountering Jesus in the way that he's inviting us into. Okay, so with Bibles out Follow along with me. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Massive claim, right? First of all, Jesus is making himself uniquely the Son of God. We discussed this um, way back when we first started the Gospel of John, that there is nothing that so... um, Uh, precisely identifies who God is than to say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you have this relationship between Father and Son that's at the heart of everything going on in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And I do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see, only what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these he will show him 
so that you <clears throat> may marvel. First thing, just a little note here. In verse 19, you have truly, truly, I say to you, this is just a cool historical fact. This actually stood out way more to people. Um, maybe if you grew up like me uh, in, a, in a Baptist church and you, you went KJV, this is verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, Jesus, the words here literally are amen, amen. Um, when, when those of you who have been around church, when we pray, when do we say Amen. The end of our words. You know what amen means? Yeah, like so be it. Like I agree. Like I, 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 I hope that what's just been said uh, is true. Or I want to affirm that what's been said is true. Right? Like I wish there was a little more of this um, when we were up here preaching. But some of you will give me an amen every now and then. Okay? Um, what are you saying? Thank you, Dana. What are you saying in that moment? You're saying, hey, what he just said, I affirm. I affirm that that's true. That's hitting a place in me that's true. Jesus puts his amen often in the Gospels at the beginning of what he says. And he does it twice so that we don't miss it. This is not how people spoke. This is not a cultural thing that he's doing here. This is a Jesus thing. This is a Jesus and only Jesus do we have record of doing this. He says, amen, amen. Then he starts preaching. In other words, He'll say this later in this text. I don't know if you heard it when Brian read it. In other words, I don't need anyone to affirm that what I'm saying is true. I'm speaking true, true. Let's get on with it, okay? Now he says, what I actually, so those are my words. True, true are my words. He says, my actions, I only do what I see the Father doing. This is fascinating. This will come up a bunch in the Gospel of John. That there seems to be this I don't even quite know what to call it. Like this access that Jesus has to the Father that's almost as though he's watching in real time and space what the Father is doing and just mimicking it as we go along. So think of what's just happened. The healing of the, of the official son, the healing of the, of the layman at the pool. of. It's almost like as Jesus is going through life, he's watching the Father go out ahead of him and he's watching the Father heal this man, and then he just comes and does what he just saw the Father doing. It's a wild way to think of how in concert Jesus' actions are with the intentions and will of God. I only do what I see the Father doing. Maybe you've seen this before with a parent or a child or maybe a grandparent and a child or a teacher and a student where you know, maybe the, the, the image that I get is like a, a parent mowing the lawn and then behind the parent comes the child sort of mowing the lawn with them. Right? That, that, but, there's this, but there's this sort of invisibility in this case to what the father is doing and Jesus makes it visible. He enfleshes what, the, what he already has seen the Father do. Isn't that wild? It's like, that's how, think of our process, right? If you follow Jesus for any amount of time, there's this process we talk about, about discerning God's will. What does God want from me? And that's a very um, labored process for us. We examine the scriptures and we talk to godly counsel, and we, and we go before God directly and try and have a sense of things, and we collect all of this data in order, in order to, to make certain choices of significance in our lives, Jesus is so utterly connected. Why? Why is our process so much more difficult? Our process is more difficult because there's all this stuff that stands between us and God. 
There's all of this reluctance to obey. There's all of, this, all of these other ideas that are competing, uh, all of these other motivations of the heart that sometimes take a while to actually exhume from our own hearts and say, oh, that's why I don't want to do what God clearly wants. There's all this stuff that's in the way between us and the Father with Jesus. It is unhindered access, and he's just walking through his day going, oh, that's where we're going? Okay. Oh, that's what you want me to do? Okay. It's amazing unity between the Father and the Son. For the Father, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now Jesus is going to make two wild claims about his identity. Let me read them both because they're one after another. First, as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Later on, if you jump down, in fact, in, in my Bible, I have a circle around that verse and then a line down to verse 26 because it says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted also uh, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. It's the same idea in, uh, in verse 21 as down in verse 26, that Jesus has life in in him. That's the first claim. Second claim, uh, verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Then go down to verse 27. Same thing. I kind of circled verse 22, drew a line down to verse 27. And he has given, and God the father has given the son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Two claims Jesus is making about his unity with the Father. That Jesus has life in himself that he is then able to give others and that the Father has actually given Jesus the authority to be the ultimate judge at the end. This is one of kind of the more wild, I won't get into the weeds on this, but it's kind of one of the more wild things that the New Testament claims is that God the Father has actually delegated authority to judge at the end of all history. He's delegated that to the Son. It's, it's, it's not precise enough to say, one day you will stand before God and give an account for your life. It's actually truer to say, one day you will stand before Jesus himself and give an account for your life. Talk about why that might be significant in a bit. But these are the two things that Jesus is saying. I don't think, all week I was thinking about this, I don't think there's two things, well, maybe there are, but I don't think you're going to do much better identifying two things that are more unique about God and his godness than the fact that he has life in him and that he, he will be the ultimate judge at the end. What he means by life in him is the great philosophical question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Like You, you can be atheistic uh, all day long, but you still have to explain how something, everything came from nothing, right? That, that's the great base philosophical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? The distinctly biblical answer to that is, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Through the word, everything was made, and nothing that has been made was made apart from him. In other words, right there at the origin 
of existence is the Father and Son working in concert. And Jesus has life in him. What he's talking about here is, is as, as expansive as you can think of that term, he's talking about, I mean, just, just for one second, think of how extraordinary it is that we are, that we are living in the middle of, of a solar system and a galaxy and a universe I don't commend this comedian, but I'm thinking of a comedian who's like, you think you're in America right now? He's like, zoom out, right? Like, like, you, like you're on a rock flying through space around this giant energy orb. And like, you know music and you um, will laugh today and you'll have food. Do you think of how crazy that is? Where did life come from? I'm not talking about evolution versus creation. I'm just talking about life. And the biblical answer is the son. That, that the father gave that to, that the son has life in him. Right? Let's not reduce Jesus to like um, a, a better friend than our best friend. A better pastor than my pastor. A better teacher than the greatest. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In him is life. That's who Jesus is. And then he says, and because of how unified I am to the Father, he's also authorized me to judge at the end. To, to be the one that every single living image bearer will stand before in the resurrection on that day. This is the scripture's unified teaching, is that there will come a day when every single image bearer who has ever existed in the universe will be raised and stand before the judge and either go to eternal, amazing, beautiful, redeemed existence with the one that created them or to eternal separation and judgment. And Jesus says, that's me. A man, <laughs> a Jewish builder in the first century who like really worked, walked on this planet said, that's me. That's wild. <laughs> like, that's a wild claim. And also, don't make Jesus less radical. It's like, why did, why did they kill such a sweetheart? Whoa, 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 whoa. He was a sweetheart in so many years. He was also saying stuff that'll get you killed. Right? Here's, here's what's so interesting. Is we live in a moment where everybody wants justice. Everybody wants justice. And yet we fear the existence of a judge. Because you know what a judge also is? A judge is your king. Like you're, you're accountable to that judge. Which means you're not just going to be accountable at the end. You're going to be accountable now. And I think that one of the confusing things in our cultural moment is everybody wants justice, 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 justice. But everybody wants to be their own king and queen. And I think that that instinct is where so much of the, the mess of our cultural moment comes in. Because here's what we do, is we want to be, we wanna be our, our, our own authority, we, we want to rule over our own lives, but deep within the human heart, we just know, and I'm sorry, but we just know that we know that we do not have what it takes to be the, the judge of all. Because we know, here's what the scriptures say, because we know 
that we can't even live by our own standards. And so a lot of times what we're doing in this moment is we're finding these very idiosyncratic subcultures, uh, mostly through social media and other means, that will make us feel a little better about ourselves and say, at least you're not them. And it provides this like external judge that's a much lighter king than we fear, that assuages, that soothes, that calms down this inner instinct that says, I, 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 can't, I can't actually bear up under the responsibility of being my own judge and king. And so we're just throwing stones away because it feels good at least for a moment to be someone else's judge, okay? What Jesus is saying is I'm judge and king. And I'm judging king because of the nature of who I am. Not because I'm superior than other earthly rulers. I'm a whole thing altogether. I am the originator of life. And I am the one that every ruler, every president, every dictator, every boss, every parent, every, everyone will someday stand before and say, you are judge. I am the one to be judged. And now it's time for me to give an account to you. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm in verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jump down, because I think he's saying very similar things, at least in my Bible. There's a paragraph that goes from 19 to 24, and then a paragraph that goes from 25 to 29. I think that that's helpful. Because I think he's saying very similar things there in subtly different ways. So here he says, truly, truly, amen, amen. No one checked me on this. It's true because of who I am. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Why? But has, because he's passed from death to life. Now jump down to verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He says two things here. He says, you believe in me, you cast your lot in with me, you throw yourself wholly uh, independence on me, and you have passed from life to death. Then he says, subtly differently, he says, one day there will be a resurrection of all people. You'll stand before me and some will go. The, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of the righteous. Those who have done evil will go to eternal judgment. You say, which is it? Is it believe in Jesus or is it do good things? See how those are two different standards it sounds like? Christians do all kinds of jumping jacks to try and get out of this. Say, well, um, right, like I stand up here in so many ways every single week saying it's not about whether you do good or, or, or bad. We're, we're all a mixture of both. Like there's no good that can impress God so much that he's got to, like, which is it? Which is it? The Bible is so much more comfortable with this than we are. The Bible is saying there is a kind of life that is so utterly impossible apart from connectedness to Jesus that you don't have to worry if you're connected to Jesus about how much good, how much bad. Because the only real difference is are you alive or are you dead? Are you spiritually alive or are you spiritually dead? In the same way that, that 
a plant doesn't grow by its fruit, so too do we not grow by doing better things. A plant grows by sending its roots into the soil. The fruit is evidence of the life that it's drawing from the soil. Okay? That's what the scriptures, you know, it, it talks about fruitfulness precisely because that image is so helpful. You're not going to get in by trying to produce fruit. Right? Like a plant doesn't produce its own fruit. It produces fruit as it's connected to soil and nutrition, and all the things that it needs in order for growth to mysteriously come. And then you can look and say, oh, that's alive. At the end of your life, you will stand before Jesus and you will either stand before the one who has given you life and you will say to him, Jesus, you know me through and through. You know what a mess I was. You know all the bad things and all the good things. We can sit here and go through them if that's going to be helpful and if that's going to be necessary. But Jesus, I know that I know that I was actually alive. And I know that I couldn't have been apart from you. And maybe sometimes that life looked really pretty on the outside. Maybe it was ugly on the outside. Sometimes it was pretty on the outside and ugly on the inside. Sometimes it was ugly on the outside and pretty on the inside. But I know that it was life. Because it felt like something that I couldn't produce myself. My frustration with my sin when I was ugly on the outside and yet yearning for you on the inside. I know that that was life. I know that when it was really good on the outside and a little ugly on the inside that you were working things deeply within me because I was alive. I could, I could feel my roots going deeper into the soil. It's life. That's all that matters. Are you alive or not? That's the choice that you have that Jesus is giving you. So here's what happens. One day, you will stand before the judge who, if you hear these words and respond in faith, is also your savior. You realize that? You'll stand before Jesus who some will cower in his presence because they've never bowed the knee to him. I hope that when you stand before him, Bowing the knee to him will feel like the most instinctual thing that you can do because you've done it your whole life. And when Jesus says, what hope do you have, sinner? <laughs> what hope do you have, imperfect evildoer? We can look up and say, the only hope that I ever had. And you know it full well because it's you, right? So why not make him judge and king now? Why not start now? Why not bow the knee now? And to say, Jesus, how do you want me to start living? Because the way that he calls you to live is not a game to get your good deeds up. It's a game to show you what life looks like. It's a game to show you what joy actually looks like. You don't go to Jesus and then start the good deed, bad deed game. You go to Jesus and start life at last, finally, when you were once dead. Jesus invites us in three ways to examine and encounter this. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. I'm in verse 30 now. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now he's going to talk about testimony. Um, he's going to talk about witness. These are very Bible-y words that we can get too used to. I know LeBron has tried to use them and take them up for himself, but they're still bible -y for a lot of us. Think of this as evidence. He's talking about here's the evidence that I bring. He's talking about sort of law court imagery here. And he's saying, here, here are the witnesses. Here's the testimony that I bring forward. He says, what I'm not bringing forward is just my own word about myself. 
He says, amen, amen. In some ways, though, he says, don't take my word for it, though. Because if all I have is me, I'm just like the rest of these other fakes. Is I'm just saying, no, 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 really, really, look at me. He says, no, 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 here's the evidence that I bring. There's another one who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking about his father. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He said, yeah, John, John also bore witness about who I was. That's helpful. It's not ultimate. He says, that's, that's not ultimately what I need you to rely on. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you're willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He's talking about John the Baptist. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, raising the dead, healing the, the sick, these bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in me, for you did not receive the one whom he has sent. Talking about himself. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So, so I know that that's a lot, right? This is where it gets a little confusing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying encountering Jesus largely comes through three means. It comes through other people bearing witness about Jesus. Very few of us come to saving faith in Jesus without having met some Christians who loved us well, who lived out their faith authentically. Right? Like most of our stories are wrapped up in someone who bore witness about him. And Jesus says, that's a beautiful thing. He says, don't get too comfortable in that light. You gotta keep moving. Because if, if you're always relying on other people's faith, you're actually basking in the light of something other than direct relationship with God. Young people, this is for you. This is a really important thing. There's only so long you can walk in life sort of drafting off of your parents' faith, living off of your parents' faith. Right? Like at some point, you've got to make that decision and say, this is mine. I am actually making the decision to follow Jesus myself. It's a beautiful gift they've given you to bear witness about Jesus, but don't, don't live in that light too long. It's a secondary light. It's a reflective light. Turn to the actual sun, right, if you will. Second thing that he says here is my works, what I'm doing. Bear witness that I'm uniquely sent by God. And here he's talking, at least at this time, about his miracles. For us who live on the other side of death and resurrection, we should hear that first and foremost. Jesus is like, you want to know what authenticates my identity as the unique son of God? The fact that I defeated death, which humanity before and since has had a 0% success rate doing. The most unique thing about Jesus' authenticating works is his resurrection. Maybe, maybe you're someone who hasn't, who hasn't put your faith in Jesus. Uh, maybe this is one of your first times in church. One of, the, one of the best practical pieces of advice that I can give you is go wrestle with the reality of the resurrection. Go, go read it. I'll gladly give you some suggestions on this. Wrestle with the fact that we have like really good historical evidence for the weirdest possible thing that could ever happen in human history. That it's like a really well-attested event, and when you think about what the event was, a guy was dead and then wasn't dead anymore, I just encourage you, wrestle with that. Wrestle with the works of Jesus. Because Jesus says, that, that's where, now, you might say, well, the only access that we have to that is the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be surprised, though, maybe, how God meets you as you actually wrestle with his works. 
okay? Look at the resurrection, look at the resurrection. There are so many really wonderful Christians in the world who would say, it's when, we're about to come up on Easter. It was when someone just put the, the bare facts about the resurrection in front of me that I began, not that I fell on my knees and gave my life to you, but when I began to say, there might be something here. The last thing he says is the scriptures themselves. Uh, we evangelicals, um, we can do weird stuff with the Bible and make it like a member of the Trinity and, and o- almost personify it. Um, I'm going to try and avoid that over-exaggeration, but still say there's something about direct encounter with the scriptures that uniquely allows, th- that just uniquely might open some things up for you. I don't know how many of you had this, but um, many people would attest that uh, maybe when they weren't a Christians and they were first interacting with some Christians, maybe someone said, read this gospel. Hey, read the gospel, John. That'd be a good thing. There's great books out there, N.T. Wright, C.S. Lewis, all these wonderful authors um, who write these books about sort of proof of Jesus. Sometimes the, the far sort of more direct path is just go to the text, go to the scriptures. Jesus himself in this passage authenticates that everything that the scriptures are, are are the actual words of God. Jesus put it, I heard it this week, put it this way. Jesus knows nothing of the red letter Bible, which you might know nothing of the red letter Bible, but some Bibles, um, when Jesus talks, they put it in red because like, whoa, God is speaking, right? Jesus doesn't have a category for that because he says, no, 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 every word is spoken by God. And so when you're reading the scriptures, there's this conversational nature to it um, that's really distinct, that, that people, it, it is a little bit, I don't know, a little bit mystical to feel like, wow, I really feel like God was speaking to me. Well, yeah, it's kind of it's what the Bible is. Those of you who've been walking with Jesus a long time, same three ways we encounter him. You've got to have some people in your life. Got to have some people who speak that life that's in Jesus. And it's a reflective light, but you need some people around you who are going to speak that over you. Right? This is what we're trying to do in D course. This is what we're trying to do in care groups is get some people around you who can speak that over you, who can say, hey, remember how good Jesus is. Hey, remember um, that you are loved. Hey, don't speak that condemnation over yourself. Hey, you're forgiven and loved. We need other people. Sometimes we underdo that, especially, uh, well, I won't get into all that, but, but right, there is this move away from being able to speak forgiveness over each other and to speak um, counsel into each other. You need some people. Second thing, um, we need to keep going back to Jesus. Christian, you never advance beyond encounter with Jesus. You never advance beyond needing to re-wrestle with, wait, what does it mean that he really resurrected? What does it mean that he got up? This is why some of y'all only shout on Easter Sunday because it's the one Sunday where we really, really think about like, yo, he's alive. He's not dead, right? Like that should be a daily discipline to wrestle with that. And then third, you never get beyond the scriptures. It's still the living word of God, Christian. It's still how God is going to primarily speak to you. It is still the primary authority for life and godliness for us, right? We don't grow beyond these ways of encountering Jesus. There's two things that get in the way. There's two barriers that get in the way of encountering Jesus in those ways. And it's what he ends with. He says, rereading verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Check out verse 40. Underline this. Go ahead. Write in your Bible. Write in the church's Bible for all I care. Verse 40. 
Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He ends this with this wild statement at at the last couple verses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's, He's saying very similar things here. He's saying, you think that your knowledge of the scriptures, even living out what the scriptures call you to, is where life comes from. He's talking to people who are really committed Bible people, okay? He says, there is a temptation to use the Bible to keep us from direct personal encounter with Jesus. There is a temptation to use our religious practice and rhythms of life to keep us from direct encounter with Jesus. There is a way to show up to decourse and care group and men's night and Sunday gathering to serve up here, to open the word and to preach. That can do an end around on Jesus himself. That can never actually go face to face with Jesus. I, I just finished reading, uh, uh, speaking of C.S. Lewis, uh, I just finished reading Till We Have Faces, one of his lesser-known books. And right there in the title, it gives away the whole point. It's this wild novel, very difficult. It was a slog, if I'm honest. But the last two pages, I was like, I think it was worth it. But it, right, there, <laughs> right there in the title is, is what it's saying is we can't encounter God not because God has hidden himself. It is not because Jesus is hidden and far off. It is because we ourselves don't have faces. In other words, we don't ever wrestle with the true nature of who we are enough to bring that fullness to Jesus face-to-face and encounter what we might encounter face-to-face with him. And the whole point of the book is until we have faces, direct encounter with Jesus doesn't come. How are you avoiding eye-to-eye contact, right? Have you ever stood in front of a child and you're like, why aren't you looking at me? And they're not looking at you either because they're totally distracted and want nothing to do with what you're saying, or they don't like what you're saying, and, they're, and they think that by avoiding what, like eye contact that somehow this isn't happening, right? <laughs> Guys, this is what we do to Jesus. We come here on a Sunday morning, and he's speaking, and he's inviting us in, and he's wooing us. And we look over there, we're like, maybe... Maybe what, he, what I know he's saying to me right now, maybe it's not actually what he's saying. He's going, look at me. Look at me. Don't do church and look away from me. Don't do Bible and look away from me. Don't do Christian community and look away from me. In me is life. I'm the soil. The only hope you've got of real life. Second thing he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The second barrier, personal barrier that gets in the way is we would much rather be impressive to the world than impressive to God. And we would much rather receive the direct eye contact and praise and applause of others 
than of the source of life and the one we will stand before as judge one day anyway. Most of the ways, God spoke this in a deep way to me this week, most of the ways that we seek to be impressive to this world are in direct contradiction to faithfulness to Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you spend your whole life trying to be impressive to those around you, trying to be in the in-group, trying to look a certain way, trying to succeed enough so that people think such and such of you, at some point you will find yourself disconnected from the true source of glory and adoration and praise that your heart actually longs for because so many of those pursuits are not just distractions to faithfulness to God. They're barriers. They're in contradiction to faithfulness to Jesus. Anybody feel like they need some grace right now? <laughs> right? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to come to this table. The band will play for a little bit because we need grace. Right? We need reconnection to life. We need forgiveness because the ways in which we have not walked these things out, the ways in which we have sought the glory of others instead of the glory that comes uniquely from Jesus. I don't know what God's working in your heart. He met me in, in about half a dozen different ways through this text. Here's what I will say. I'm sitting right now, sitting right now in silence, in the presence of God, might be one of the best ways to respond to what he's calling us to. Look him in the eye is what I'm trying to say. Don't look away. Don't look away. Look him in the eye and say, Jesus, what are you trying to say to me right now? And give me courage to listen and then give me courage to follow. And then come and receive forgiveness for the fact maybe it's taken a while for you to give my contact. And then receive some, some empowerment by his body broken, his blood poured out to go and walk in that faithfulness this week. How we do things is we come down these two aisles. Uh, we have bread here, gluten-free crackers in the middle. We have wine and juice. Um, you take a piece of the bread or the cracker, dip it in the wine and juice. Take it and go out the sides. Scriptures are very clear. If you're not a follower of Jesus, um, you honor him most by bowing the knee today, putting your faith in him, and then coming to this table maybe for the first time. That's the most honoring thing you can do. Um, if, you're not, if you're not there yet, um, you, you also honor him by just just considering what you've heard today um, and, uh, and not partaking. But if you're a follower of Jesus, come to this table. We all need it so desperately.